Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey service for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Salzberg. Today we're going to be talking about the attorney shortages in Indiana. We have three guests with us. Two are in the studio. Anne McFadden is the Dean of Students and Assistant Dean of Student Services for the Maurer School of Law at IU Bloomington. And Steve Sanders is Professor of Law and Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at the Maurer School of Law, and he's also the Val Nolan Faculty Fellow. And Owen Circuit Court Judge uh, of the Second Circuit Court, Judge Kelsey Hanlon, is with us by Zoom. So we have three guests with us today. If you have uh, questions or comments, you can send your information to, um, you can tweet us at uh, Noon Edition, or you can send your questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can also call us 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 877-285-9348. So thank you all for being here. I know there was, there's been a lot in the news recently about uh, attorney shortages. And I'm just going to start with a, you know, a very basic question. I mean this in all seriousness. I mean, why is this a problem and what, what are the issues that this – brings forward. Anne McFadden, let's start with you. Sure. Thank you so much, Bob, and thanks for having me on the show. Mm -hmm. um, I think the, the biggest problem is access to justice. Um, you have places in the state where there are no lawyers other than the judge and the elected prosecutor. So even for someone who's convicted of a crime, there is no one in their county to represent them. And so this, they, the county has to go outside to contract people as public defenders from outside of the state. There's transportation issues for defendants. Um, and this is that's just talking about criminal cases. You also have you know civil cases. There's no one who is necessarily within driving distance of um, someone. And so then that makes a real problem for people to be able to have access to the courts. And people can obviously represent themselves in some capacities, but there's a lot of disputes and there's a lot of things out there that you really do need a lawyer um, to be able to help you with. So mm -hmm. I would say the reason it's a problem is, is, is access to justice. Steve, what can you add? Well, uh, what you find, I think, is a lot of times uh, lawyers who served these small communities for many years are retiring, and younger lawyers who graduate from law schools just aren't attracted to those small communities, don't see opportunities that might exist there for an interesting practice. And so uh, it, it's been a sort of slow process, and I think now it's hitting a critical mass of lawyers leaving and disappearing from small towns. And this is this has gotten a lot of attention in Indiana, although from the you know research I've done, it's not exclusively an Indiana problem. There are many states that have this problem in their small towns, in rural communities. Um, uh, uh, attorneys leaving, attorneys uh, uh, being underpaid. Uh, prosecutors and public defenders being underpaid, and um, and and as a society, I think uh, both law schools and government are all trying to figure out what to do about this. Mm -hmm. Judge Hanlon, are you uh, seeing this in Owen County? Yeah. So you know, I I like to explain this to people. Uh, so we have an aging bar. Uh, with all due respect to any bar members that may be listening, but. Uh, we're, you know, two retirements away from, you know, potentially not even being able to meet our constitutional mandates uh, in terms of providing public defenders to indigent clients. So this is a it, it's the state's obligation, but it's been delegated to the counties. And, and there are a lot of counties that are really going to be be struggling in the near future j just to meet minimum constitutional mandates. I'm not even talking about access to justice as like a, a broad term. I'm talking about just minimal constitutional mandates in terms of providing 
counsel to indigent defendants. So it's a serious problem. And, and I also think anybody that's interested in just the administration of justice should be interested in this issue. Uh, if you think about a line deputy prosecutor, you know, that person wields a lot of power. A line public defender has a huge responsibility for representing clients. And, and we want good, bright attorneys in these positions. And uh, so the challenges of attracting lawyers to rural communities to, to fill these positions is, I mean, it goes to sort of the basic administration of justice in the state. Mm-hmm. Is this uh, specifically a rural problem or are there shortages in the urban areas as well, Ann? Um, there's absolutely shortages in the urban areas. I don't think you would you could say that there's necessarily a shortage in someplace like Indianapolis, but I'm, I hear uh, – part of my job is I'm the assistant dean for career services at the law school, and so I get a lot of inquiries from – you know, um, law f- small firms um, throughout the state, solo practitioners who are looking to to you know um, retire and want to be able to pass on their practice. And so I, I hear from people in even Fort Wayne, which we think of as a pretty big city, um, Fort Wayne, um, you know, Northwest Indiana. Um, I hear from people all over the state who say we are not attracting enough young lawyers to come to our communities, and it makes it difficult for us to serve clients. It makes it difficult for the lawyers to be able to retire. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a joke about how you know, as a lawyer, you can basically work until you pass, you know, until you pretty much pass away. Um, but there's people want to retire; they don't want to do that, and they would like to be able to pass along the business business that they've built to someone else. Um, so it is certainly it is a problem that is, I think, has reached, as the judge said, a very critical state in a lot of our communities, but it doesn't, it is not limited just to um, the most rural communities in Indiana. Yeah, we'll talk mostly probably about the rural areas mm-hmm. because maybe the, the problem is more acute there, mm-hmm. but I just wanted them to get that. Yeah, the there, um, the legislature had a, a study committee looking at this issue this fall and um, statistic that was reported to them, I'm, I'm getting this, this was on um, uh, WFIU's website, that um, nationwide the average is um, four attorneys per uh, 1,000 people. Indiana as a total has 2.3 lawyers for 100,000 per, per thousand residents, uh, whereas the average is four per thousand. And it was reported that that puts the state in the bottom 10 nationally overall for uh, statewide lawyers per per thousand people in the population. So why is this happening, do you think? Why, why are people not going into the legal profession? I don't think that we're having a problem with people going into the legal profession. And, you know, our enrollment stays pretty steady. Mm-hmm. IU McKinney's mm-hmm. enrollment stays pretty steady. I think the the I think the consideration is what why are we not sending these graduates into these communities? I think mm-hmm. that's that is more of the concern. And I think that's a multifaceted problem. Um, you know, part of it is that um, it's not an attractive proposition to come out of law school with tens of thousands of dollars in debt and then have to hang your future on going out and, and starting your own business. I think a lot of a lot of graduates, they want the security of a paycheck. Um, they want a, the security of knowing that they will have benefits, et cetera. Um, so, you know, the idea of, okay, if you can – you know, five years from now, once you've built your business, you'll be making a ton of money and you'll be able to turn business away in these small communities because they're so desperate for lawyers. That's attractive to some people, but some people would prefer to know that they're going to be trained, mentored, and paid a salary for their first few years of practice. So that's part of the, that's, I think, part of the issue. Um, and I think another thing, too, is that, you know, at least IU Mauer, we attract a lot of students from out of the state and they're not as familiar with the different communities in Indiana where they might have a wonderful life. Um, I, um, you know, I just looking back at the past few years, um, you know, around 40% of our students come from Indiana and around 40% of our graduates stay in Indiana. It is not the same 40%. So you have some subset of students who've come here from, you know, California or from New York. Um, They like it here and they want to make a life here. Um, And you have some Hoosiers, obviously, who they say, okay, now this is my chance. I'm going to go to the big city. But I think that um, there's a disconnect between the opportunities that might be available in these places and the people that come to school here. And so I think there's there's two parts. You know, it's just, like I said, it's the security of coming out of school, knowing that you have a job and a paycheck. And it's also just the unfamiliarity with what is life like in Fort Wayne? What is life like in, in Owen County, where the judge is from? And, and what can we do as a state to make those more attractive options for people? Mm-hmm. 
Judge, is this a similar issue for people who are, you know, going on on the bench? Are you are, are judges um, easy to find in rural areas? You know, I'm not sh- I'm not sure how to okay. answer that question. Okay. I, I think in a in a lot of counties, you know, it's a in a small county, being the judge is a great job in a lot of ways. It's certainly, um, you know, financially rewarding. Uh, you're, you don't have a lot of privacy, and there are some drawbacks uh, in that sense. But, but judge and elected, so judges and elected prosecutors, to my mind, are probably not the problem in this scenario. It's attorneys. Um, and and I'm, inc- I'm including in that public defenders, I'm including that including that line deputy prosecutor. So not necessarily the top two in the prosecutor's office, because I do think that those positions, uh, because they're state paid and uh, offer state benefits are, are easier to fill. It's these more um, entry level positions in those offices. And then also general practitioners that to my mind is really more of the problem in the scenario in rural communities. Mm-hmm. So I know there are, lots of people looking at this issue. What what are some of the solutions? And Judge, I know you went to a conference recently and this was a, a an issue that was discussed. So what are what are people talking about around the state to try to address this? So there are a lot of efforts in uh, in other states that uh, Indiana is, that at least we're having discussions about and um, I think our uh, um, friends from the university can talk a little bit more about this, things like the Rural Justice Initiative. Um, But I think you're seeing some benefit from large-scale programs like income-based loan repayment, um, public interest loan forgiveness. I mean, that is making some jobs possible, but I don't know that it's really moving the needle necessarily in terms of the problem. Before we went on air, we were discussing, um, I I think the thousand foot view for rural communities is how do you market yourself and how do you attract people to your community? Attorneys are just like everybody else. They want to live in a place that has amenities. They want to have a nice quality of life. Um, and, And I think that there are many, many rural communities in Indiana that can offer that. It's just how do we, how do we market ourselves and, and make students aware of that? I think another I think that we just have to be very creative. And I I think if we look at some of the existing recruitment tools in terms of, for instance, on-campus interviewing where law firms will come and interview students on campus, you know, are there analogs to that for rural communities, for solo and small firm practitioners? And, um, and you were mentioning, um, just some of the the things that advice that you would give small firm or solo firm attorneys in this situation that I think could potentially move the needle also. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Thank you, Judge, for that. So, I mean, a couple things, you know, there is a, Indiana, we're very lucky because we have a very wonderful uh, solo and small firm bar in this state. Um, I would pro- I don't know what the numbers are, but a huge percentage of the per- of the practitioners in Indiana are solo and small firm practitioners, and the bar is very active, um, and they're very supportive of one another. They put on a wonderful conference um, in down in French Lick every year, um, and so one of the things that we've done since I have been at Mauer is um, we invite small and solo practitioners every year to come to the law school to participate in you know our career programming. So they you know do a panel about what is it like, what are the benefits, what are the draw drawbacks of this kind of, um, of, of this kind of practice. Um, we invite them to participate in our career expo where they get to come and, you know, students stop by the table and get to learn about, you know, what is it like to practice on your own or what is it like to practice in a small firm? Um, and then we sponsor, you know, up to 10 students every year to go to, to, um, to go to French Lick, to go to that conference. So, you know, there are things like that that we're doing to kind of introduce the idea. Um, but to your point, though, about kind of alternatives to on-campus interviewing, I mean, one of the things that I see that I I think is the real problem is a lot of times lawyers don't think about, in my experience and um, since I've been at Maurer, um, retiring lawyers or lawyers at small firms, they don't think about creating a pipeline for the future. They want to hire somebody that can make money for them and they want to hire somebody for right, right out of law school. Um, and 
I think what they would be better served, especially if they're in communities where, you know, people don't know that much about the community, I think they'd be better served to create pipelines by hiring law clerks. So, you know, 1L summer, 2L summer, um, during the school year, hire law clerks so that they can get to know them and they can get to know how great the practice is and they can um, get to know the community. I think building a pipeline and um, that goes to like your point, Judge, about, you know, selling these communities and the quality of life. And, you know, what the students can go and see like, wow, look, I mean, this person's making really good money. They have a really nice house. They live in this community. There's cute restaurants. There's things to do here. Okay, it's better than I thought it was going to be. That is something that I think, um, you know, we would be very supportive of. We at the law school would be very supportive of having, you know, lawyers come in and say, hey, I'd love to have a law clerk. We'd be very happy to connect people. Um, and that's something that I think that lawyers should be considering. Don't wait until you need an attorney. Think about how can you bring up talent that might then want to join your firm when they graduate. It's just like an internship program, exactly. basically. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it, it may be – I mean, Anne, Anne does an absolutely fabulous job exposing people and, and telling people about career opportunities and matching our students up with career opportunities. And it – could be more. Now that I reflect on it, it could be that you know, in in the educational program of the law school, we could do more to expose students to the kinds of issues and and settings that you have in what's sometimes called a county seat practice. You know, in so many of our classes, we're you know dealing with uh, big questions of federal law and our moot court competition. You know, has people pretend they're arguing in front of the Supreme Court or a federal court of appeals. Um, you know, I, I don't think we have a course on sort of law firm management, uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, what you would need to know is a practical level in order to build a law practice. And so maybe there's more that we could be doing too to break to not just on the career side but to expose students to um, what the day-to-day -day life and issues and decisions that you make are of a person who's doing a, a county seat law practice. And that tends to be a very generalist practice. You tend to do, you know, a, a bunch of everything rather than specializing. And that might be attractive to some people who, to some students who sort of even get to their third year of law school and haven't quite decided what they want to specialize in or they assume they have to choose a, an area where they will be a specialist or a particular way of being a lawyer, whereas there's a lot more flexibility when you're a small-town lawyer. I want to give our uh, contact information. You're listening to Noon Edition today with guests talking about the attorney shortages in Indiana, particularly in rural communities. If you have questions or comments, you can send them to us at news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can also send, us, send them on uh, X, formerly Twitter, at Noon Edition. You can call in at 812-855-0811 or toll free at 877-285-9348. And I wanted to get into some of the realities, the financial realities. Sure. You were talking about um, law school loans and then going out and, and you know, I don't know how much a, a new lawyer makes. Mm -hmm. IU doesn't have commercials for that like they do at all the athletic <laughs> events about <laughs> Kelly school students and yeah. how much money they're going to make. Yeah. But w what's the reality for a, a student who's like a, a, if there is a typical student graduating from Mauer, what kind of loan repayment do mm -hmm. they have? And what can they expect to make? Yeah, I mean, it's it varies significantly. It it is it is eye opening when you see the range. So you know, we might have someone graduate and become an uh, entry level public defender and make seventy thousand dollars a year. Uh, you have someone who is a chemical engineer or a PhD chemist and go be a patent attorney at a big firm in Chicago and make two hundred twenty five. So it really really varies. Um, uh, judge had mentioned, you know, about the public interest loan repayment and the income-based loan repayment programs. And those have – I really do believe that those have made a big difference for our students. They're much more open to accepting a lower paid job where they feel like they're fulfilling the mission that they came to law school to fulfill um, if they know that, okay, there's something out there that will help me. So if I do this job – for example, I was a federal attorney for, before I came to Mauer. I put in 10 years and then I was eligible for loan repayment, um, loan forgiveness, excuse me. Um, and the other thing um, now is there's a lot of income-based um, loan repayment programs out there. So it does make it a little bit um, a little bit more palatable. You know you're never going to pay more than X percentage of your income towards your student loans regardless of how much you make. Um, I do think that this is an area where I think that our state could do more. I think um, I think that, that if we have a concern that their lawyers are not going into these communities, 
and we could follow the model of other states where they are saying, okay, we will guarantee you X percentage. We will guarantee some some percentage of income, or we will um, we will provide you with X percent of your loans, um, you know, payment or something like that, um, so that we could provide more of an incentive. Um, other things too that you know um, we could do financially is there um, other states have more of a statewide system for prosecutors and public defenders and the judge was alluding to this too that it's a state mandate but it's up to each county to figure out how to fund um, and that has created a lot more equity I think in pay for people in other states where they know okay if I get hired into the Colorado public defender system I know I'm guaranteed a certain level of income regardless of where I get put and here in Indiana it varies very widely and you could be a contract public defender making you know some huge amount of money and then you're a staff public defender and you're making a lot less so it's hard to have a what the average law student is getting paid and what the average student's law average student's debt is. Um, we feel very proud at IU Mauer because our students graduate with the lowest average debt of the three law schools in the state. Um, our students have a lot of scholarship um, money that they're given um, fee remission so that it makes law school as affordable as possible. But it still is a reality that most students are going to graduate with some debt unless they come into school with you know family money or have worked a long time before they get here. Mm -hmm. What are, what does the cohort of students look like now? And Steve, you, you and Ann both work with students all the time, but there, and I guess I'm going to, I'm going to frame this question this way. It seems like every day there's some new area of legal interpretation or legal need. And there are more and more places where, where a lawyer could get out, of, get out of school and specialize in some area of the law, mm -hmm. which might be contributing to this problem of having general practitioners mm -hmm. of the law. What are the hot areas now that people are, are trying to go into? Are you seeing students who are really choosing to go into new and different areas of the law? I would say from my perspective, um, the, the, the thing that I hear from a lot of students is I came to law school after the Black Lives Matter movement because I want to be a public defender. I want to do criminal justice. So criminal justice is very popular right now. Um, and that goes both ways of people wanting to be in prosecutor's office, but they see, the, they see the, the power and the role of the prosecutor and that they can exercise prosecutorial discretion and try to be more um, improve the justice system. That's very popular. Immigration law has been huge. So since the Trump administration, we've seen a lot of students come in who are very, very committed to immigration law and have said, the reason I came to law school is because I want to help immigrants. And then the third area is um, cybersecurity. Um, we have a huge number of students who are interested in cybersecurity. And actually, IU has a really wonderful um, kind of master's program that's a three-way collaboration between the Maurer School, the Luddy School, and, and um, the Kelly School of Business. And we have a lot of students going into that. And so that's a hot area that sort of is unrelated to the humanitarian things that mm -hmm. are driving the students. But I would say from what I, where I sit in the career service office, those are the three biggest, um, hottest, as you said, kind of areas where we see students mm -hmm. have interest. Steve, do you see the similar thing with your yeah, students? Yeah, and a lot of students who want to do uh, sort of just more generally plaintiff side civil rights litigation, yes. whether it's employment yeah. discrimination or uh, uh, suing police departments and governments. Mm -hmm. I teach a course on on that. You know, I, I think one of the things that, that also contributes to this being challenging is um, law firms that hire students, particularly larger law firms in big cities, um, you know, there's a pipeline, there's a structured interview process. In some way, it's a little, you know, if you have the credentials and the grades to do that, it's a little easier to get channeled into those areas. But big law firms tend to represent um, defendants, big corporations, the people who can afford to pay uh, those fees. If, if you want to do immigration law, if you want to do plaintiff side civil rights litigation, you have to be a little more entrepreneurial. There are small firms that do that, but those are the areas where you also have to have the courage to be willing to maybe hang out a shingle of your own or just go into partnership with uh, with a few people in a small practice. There are you know, larger firms in places like Chicago that do plaintiff side civil rights litigation, but it's, um, it's harder to um, just move into that and somebody else is going to take care of all of the infrastructure and the office expenses and everything. Mm -hmm. Judge, Judge Hanlon, we, we talk, I mean, so I asked that last question about a lot of specialty areas and, and I'm really curious what your docket looks like on a regular basis. I mean, what, 
What what kind of range of different cases might you hear in a typical if there again if I use that word typical if there is a typical week in Owen County, what's the range of cases that you might hear? Yeah, so we have uh, in Owen County we we've split our dockets, and so essentially uh, the the other judge and I don't normally hear what the other one hears. Uh, but my new colleague was previously the elected prosecutor. And so now, um, because he has some conflicts based on previously being the prosecutor, I'm hearing basically everything but probate. So, you know, I might hear criminal cases in the morning, child welfare cases in the afternoon. I'll do divorces, protective orders, civil torts, the plenary docket. So basically everything except guardianships, adoptions and trusts is the sort of short answer to that. Um, and, And so in small counties, the judges are frequently generalists in the same way that the attorneys are. And, you know, in, in your in your world, are you seeing the same attorneys coming before you uh, multiple times in a day? Or do, are there a, a wide variety of attorneys from not just Owen County, but maybe Monroe and other counties that, that you're seeing? Yeah. So I see, uh, the, I see our local attorneys a lot multiple times a day regularly. And then I see attorneys from Bloomington a lot. We have attorneys from Indianapolis. Um, so it really runs the gamut as far as, you know, who I see in a given week. Um, but one of the things that I wanted to mention just in terms of um, some of the previous questions mm-hmm. is that like, I don't think we should lay this problem completely at the feet of the law schools. And in just thinking about, you know, what attorneys you see in a given week, um, there has to be a way potentially to attract some mid-level or sort of mid-career attorneys. And, you know, I think that what can the state do if we're, if we're trying to kind of answer that question? You know, is there a way to ease some of that risk? So, for instance, you know, a program that just provides health insurance coverage if you're working in a small county or just to for those who are somewhat risk averse, but maybe mid-career, maybe looking to do something a little different or make a change, I don't know that we're doing a good job of making that possible for people. Judge, I thought I had heard about a, a community, I, I, maybe you're familiar with this, where um, the, the maybe the Chamber of Commerce or something, the local business people had gotten together in, in, in order to attract an attorney or, or several new attorneys to their community, they were willing to give discounted or free office space for a period of time, that kind of thing. I, I'm wondering if you're familiar with those kinds of initiatives, but also is this a problem that sort of the, the private market can solve or will the state through law and policy have to, in some ways, um, step in to subsidize salaries, to expand loan forgiveness programs, to do the kinds that, kinds of things you've suggested related to insurance and so forth. Um, I, I know because you attended that conference in, in Wabash about a month ago where a lot of this was discussed, do you see public policy um, as finally getting around to addressing this problem? The, the Chief Justice and other people seem to be sort of beating the drum about this, uh, and, and I'm wondering if the legislature will eventually take notice. Well, I think it's it's interesting that the concept of a local community undertaking that on their own, I think, is inspiring uh, and, and interesting and, and just sort of taking the initiative to be problem solvers without some huge statewide policy in, initiative. Uh, but in terms of you know, will the will the market bear what it can bear and this will normalize and solve itself? I don't know the answer to that question, but I can tell you when I graduated from law school several years ago, um, my husband uh, is a public defender in Monroe County. And at the time that he started in that office about 10 years ago, they would make you be a paralegal before they would even let you be an attorney just to sort of try you out. Like they had so many applicants that they could be very choosy about that and, and sort of pay people a little less, try them out and kind of work them into sort of the normal rotation of attorneys. And now, you know, they're, they have one vacancy that's been difficult to fill and are about to have another. And, you know, I'm not trying to, you know, put that office's issues on blast, but, you know, they pay Monroe County is not a place where they don't pay public defenders well. And it's not a place where there's not political will to adequately fund that office. 
So, you know, I'm not sure that it would be wise to rely on, on localities to sort of come up with solutions on their own. I think there probably has to be some broad policy initiative to really significantly produce outcomes. I don't know if I've answered your question or not, but I, I think there are, are examples where we've seen where just letting the issue try to resolve itself hasn't worked very well. I, I just noticed that there was apparently this uh, between session study commission um, at, at the state house with legislators, but, but I think I also read that it's sort of adjourned with no particular recommendations and no plans and no agenda to offer any any uh, public policy uh, proposals this term. Well, you know, there's always a chance that somebody in the legislature will will have uh, you know some strategies or some ideas and. Legislators, I know we've had Matt Pierce on this show many times. Matt Pierce will always say, "Somebody brings me a good idea, um, you know, that's that's what we need. We need to hear from from the people." So perhaps there's opportunity there. Um, I wanted to ask about just thinking about um, you know public involvement in the legal system. You know, we have the public defender's office. We also in Indiana have you know legal services right that help serve people who maybe can't afford. Lawyers, how's that sector doing at this point? Is it having a difficult time finding enough lawyers to to serve people who maybe can't afford a lawyer? I mean, in my experience, I think kind of what Judge Hanlon had mentioned, there definitely are p- public defenders offices that are understaffed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I first, my very first year here, which I started here in 2018, I got a call from um, the public defenders office in Richmond and they said, we are the highest paid public defenders office in the state of Indiana and we cannot attract anybody to come and work here. Now, I don't know whether that's still true. Um, so there's definitely, you know, even though they're paying a decent wage, it was hard for them to attract people there. Um, I think Indiana Legal Services is one of the is is one of the great places for people to work if they're interested in the public interest because it's they are well paid, they do have um, they do have good benefits, et cetera. Um, I don't know what they're hiring. I don't know if they're <clears throat> at a shortage or whatever. Um, but that isn't enough to deal. That is not enough to serve the needs of the of the indigent in this in the state. And so the other thing is, um, you know, pro bono. How are we encouraging people to do pro bono work? Um, pro bono Indiana was created a couple years ago, which kind of brings together under one umbrella all of the different regional pro bono um, networks throughout Indiana. That's a great way, I think, for people to get access to to justice, access to attorneys. I think some other things that are happening, um, you know, statewide, like, you know, with COVID, everything went on Zoom, like to the extent that things can still be handled on Zoom. That's a great thing. And I'd be very curious to hear what the judge has to say about that, just as far as like giving lawyers more stretch, like you can live in Bloomington, but you can represent someone in Greene County without having to go there or et cetera. Um, So I don't know if that answers your your question. Yeah, Um, no, I appreciate it. And Judge, I want you to follow up on that. I mean, do you allow uh, people to not appear, attorneys to not appear in court and do something uh, by remote? Yeah, so um, it it just depends. There's an administrative rule that covers it. And so... um, we have a setup in my courtroom where it's very easy for us to do hybrid hearings. So if somebody wanted to appear and physically appear in person and another party wanted to appear by Zoom, we can absolutely facilitate that fairly seamlessly. Um, and I've not had, and so the administrative rule basically allows for it. Um, it's discretionary, so the court can grant or deny that, but it allows for it on the motion of a party for good cause shown or when the parties all agree. Yeah, can you, and, defi- can you define that for us? Yeah, so that's a great question. For good cause shown, uh-huh. uh, there's been a lot of discussion of that, and actually at that Rural Justice Symposium, that was one of the things um, that uh, Judge Melissa May on the Indiana Court of Appeals has done a lot of work on access to justice and uh, court access and uh, you know just some kind of discussion and encouragement about, well, if an attorney could represent an indigent person but can't drive three hours to come to your courtroom, but could appear by Zoom, does that constitute good cause? And I think it certainly could. I don't think that that would be a bad faith reading of that rule. Um, There's some administrative, I would say kind of minor administrative burden associated with doing Zoom appearances for the court. And so where we run into trouble, at least in my court, is where I don't get a motion that conforms to the rule 
and I get a phone call five minutes before the hearing. Hey, I want to appear by, you know, it's, that's, I think where Zoom gets a little bit of a bad rap, but I think it could potentially be a very useful tool, especially for some of these um, civil legal aid providers that are, you know, in the central part of the state that want to increase their reach to rural communities. I, I think the issue with with civil legal aid and, and some of the, I just don't, I just don't know that there are enough attorneys or enough financial support for that to ever really scratch the surface of the problem. Mm-hmm. And in Owen County, I have pro se or unrepresented litigants in my court all the time. I mean, it's a, a significant percentage of the cases, one or both parties aren't represented by counsel. And it's a, it's a really, it's a huge problem, a big challenge. And, you know, sometimes you worry a little bit about the results that you get in a case if, if you're not getting information. And, you know, it's probably unreasonable to expect somebody that's not a trained attorney to know what they need to bring information wise and evidence wise. So it 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 really kind of undermines, I think, trust in the system at times when you're getting these maybe not so great results because you've just made a decision with the, the best decision you could with the limited information that you got at a hearing. You know, that reminds me of a conversation I had years ago with uh, the late, great Judge Mark Kellums, who mm-hmm. talked about having uh, people appear in his court without representation and how difficult that made it for a judge. So the the, the legal profession, I think, at, at all levels, it's legal education as well as, um, you know, uh, everything on up, tends to be fairly hidebound, fairly tradition-oriented. And so you need three years of study and a, and a JD and usually a bar exam in order to practice law. I, I know that, you know, among the pu- public policy, the part of the public policy discussion that I have read is this idea of maybe people with more limited training could be able to do certain things. Um, you know, I, uh, as you get older, you have joint and arthritis problems, and the person I see is a physician assistant. But that's a misnomer. I mean, when I deal with her and when she helps me out, it's kind of indistinguishable from dealing with a doctor. Now, she can't perform surgery, but she can do a lot of things. And so people have suggested that the legal profession needs to move in that direction as well, maybe have tiers of education and certification where you could do certain things, maybe representing in, uh, a person in a misdemeanor criminal case, for example, um, without having a full three-year JD. You know, one of the things we're thinking about in the law school is how do we rethink uh, you know, what we do in order to meet needs that aren't being served right now. Uh, we're, we're, you know, hoping to be able to offer soon a, a, a one-year law degree called a Master of Legal Studies that won't be as structured or be different than a JD, but it'll give you some formal legal training uh, that you may want in a job where you don't fully need a JD, but having some formal legal education is helpful. Uh, will somebody like that eventually be able to have some kind of license or certification to do something that right now you need a lawyer to do? I think those are questions that are being asked as part of this public policy debate. Judge, is that a good idea? Well, I I think it depends. And I, part of this conversation is you don't want perfect to be the enemy of good. And we've looked at different things. And I'll give an example of uh, the um, Indiana Legal Health website. So that has numerous forms that people can use to represent themselves and file cases and their common family law forms and name change petitions and other documents on there. Um, I wonder sometimes, and I want to preface this by saying I don't want to live in a world without the forms. So uh, I'll, I'll start with that. But I wonder sometimes when I get one of those forms in a divorce, for instance, and I see that there are $100,000 in retirement assets that need to be divided, And I scratch my head and say, well, no wonder people can't make a living as an attorney in a rural community. We've we've said you can just do this online. And we've not only said that we've given you the forms. So I worry a little bit about some of that and like unbundled services. And this isn't really um, to Professor Sanders point about having maybe some paraprofessional doing things. But I do think we have to be careful about if we want to address the problem. We, we probably shouldn't do things that make the problem worse and then scratch our heads about why the problem exists. Mm-hmm. And so that, you know, the simple divorce where there were no children and no assets, 
that's perfect. The form is perfect. We can move forward with that. The hearing takes 10 minutes. That's probably something we should have done a long time ago. But then now we've created this situation where, you know, maybe we're encouraging folks to do this who, who really shouldn't be doing this, who have really too many assets to be doing it, and then putting the courts in this kind of untenable position of then having to deal with it at the final hearing. So I have kind of mixed feelings about a lot of it. But I don't want, like I said, I don't want perfect to be the enemy of good in this situation. It's the same with unbundled legal services. You know, we've seen that as as a possibility. So, for instance, like an attorney helping somebody fill out the forms, for instance, or filing the petition but saying, I'm not going to come to court. Um, you know, I think that's kind of been a mixed bag in my experience. I've gotten some questions in from uh, our producer, Nathan. One of them is, talks about um, – a story by one of our reporters, uh, Brandon Smith, talked about the possibility of scaling licensure similar to the setup of the nursing structure. Steve, is that similar well, to what well, you're talking well, I about? I think that, yeah, that's the, that's what I was referring to, the idea that in, in the medical profession now you have nurse practitioners and physician assistants and people can do you know simpler, more routine things that a full MD isn't needed for. And, and I appreciate Judge Hanlon's, you know, I think – point you need to move into that cautiously mm-hmm. uh, you know it, it would need a lot of thought and and, uh, and 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 clear boundaries about what's what somebody who's not an attorney would be allowed to do All right and another question and this is for judge Hanlon but I definitely want Ann's response to it as well it says have you seen a difference in the quality uh, between an attorney who started five years ago versus one who starts now? I don't, I really don't think so. Um, One thing I will say in terms of just legal education and, um, you know, my experience with it, I I felt like I got a really wonderful legal education. I went to Maurer, uh, but I didn't necessarily leave just ready to practice law. Um, I think it was a little bit more theoretical and a little bit more, um, you know, philosophical in in a lot of the, uh, at least the classes I took. Now I may have squandered some opportunity there. But I do think we could probably do more in terms of just, you know, the practical legal skills. If we are expecting graduates to hit the ground running and to and we want to encourage private practice or solo practice or small firm practice, you know, are we giving them the tools that they need to be ready to do that immediately? And I think it would be a pretty scary proposition for anybody, regardless of the law school that they attend, to just immediately go out and start practicing law without some mentor or a supervisor. Um, and that's not necessarily an answer to the question, but I think um, you know anybody just starting out is going to need and want mentorship and support. I think it's a really good answer, and I think you know in, in most professions, I think this uh, would probably be the answer would be. Similar, but in the legal profession, sometimes when you're a lawyer and you're going and you're representing somebody else's interest, it you know there there's a lot of pressure in doing that. So, Anne, response? To yeah, I, I it's hard for me to say. You know, are the lawyers graduating today as good as the lawyers graduating five years ago? I yeah. think they're all wonderful, obviously. Um, but I will point out that you know I graduated from law school 20 years ago. I did not have the privilege of going to Mauer, um, and there was no skills requirement when I went to law school. You were not required by the ABA. Um, the ABA did not. Sorry, the ABA did not require the law schools to require the students to take skills credits in order to graduate. Our students have to take six credits of skills. And from where I sit, because I also um, administer kind of our externships, um, the students are taking a lot of advantage of that. So at Mauer, they have to get six um, six skills credits. And I would say the vast majority of the students get more than that. And what, what does that include? They can do, um, so we have skills-based courses. So they can take appellate advocacy, trial advocacy, um, pre-trial litigation, um, advanced trial practice, transactional drafting. Um, a, we have a number of courses that, that they can take. Um, we also offer a number of clinics. And so the clinics are where um, it's live client that are representing real people under the supervision of a faculty member who is sort of like the partner or the you know supervising attorney. Um, and so they can do that. Or 
they can do externships out in the community. And so we'll have, um, you know, um, Judge Hanlon has been generous enough to offer uh, opportunities in her court for students to come and, and they get to work under a judge or a licensed attorney, um, you know, kind of apprenticing essentially with, with that person. Um, I would point out that um, the bar exam is going to change very soon. Mm-hmm. And the what is, what is being called the next gen bar exam is going to be much more skills focused than now, which is essentially rote memorization of the rules for about 20 subjects. And you just have to go in and over the course of two days spew onto paper as much as you can possibly remember. Um, it's going to be the next gen bar exam, which Indiana will have to decide whether to adopt or not um, or go back to an Indiana specific exam. But if Indiana wants to continue um, administering the uniform bar exam, which we have for the past few years, um, that they will be required by 2027, I think, to adopt the um, next-gen bar exam, but that will be much more skills-based. And so we as a school are going to have to really look at our offerings and decide how are we going to prepare these students for, um, you know, for this skills-based exam, which hopefully, to Judge Hanlon's point, will get them ready, better prepared to hit the ground running. Sounds like, sounds like from what you said that you think this is a, a step forward in the bar exam. I do, but I, but it, administratively it will be difficult because you know all of us who've gone to law school. Um, you know, up, leading up into this point, like that was not, that is not the focus of the bar exam. And so even though I would not say, and Steve can confirm this, our professors are not teaching to the test, mm-hmm. but this is going to require a, something to change at the law school to teach more towards that test because you can't cram for a skills-based test over the course of the two months that you're studying for the bar the way you can for, okay, I never took family law, but I'm going to learn whatever I need to learn to pass, um, you know, on this exam. So it is going to require some um, changes to our curriculum. Okay. Yeah. Um, and mentioned externships. And since we have Judge Hanlon, too, she's familiar with this program, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention one thing that Maurer has been doing for about five years now is something we call our Rural Justice Initiative. It puts students, after their first year of law school, it places them into um, courthouses and counties in smaller rural communities. Judge Hanlon has hosted students. We've had judges, uh, uh, students in uh, uh, Green County and Putnam County and in a number of other places. Um, and the idea is that this, you know, most judges in these small communities don't have law clerks. They don't have assistant. Uh, and, and so even though, you know, what a first-year law student can do is limited, um, they can do basic legal research. They observe in the courtroom. They see what happens in these county courthouses. They get to see and talk um, uh, uh, you know, I- informally about the judge, about with the judge, about their work, about what they see. McKinney has a similar program as well. And so, um, you know, it, it's competitive. You know, we, we just did the presentation to first-year law students who will be interested in applying to that. And um, right now, that's something the law school really is just funding itself. We do pay students a stipend to participate in that. Um, uh, it, it gives them some additional incentive to do something like that with their first year, uh, after the first year of law school. We only have about three or four minutes to go in the program. I, I want to uh, I want to offer something that has sort of struck me as we've talked about all this. It seems like that that with these shortages, the people who are going to be penalized the most are the people who can least afford to be penalized, that people who have a lot of money get into some kind of legal issue are still going to go out, be able to go out and find a lawyer, pay them a lot of money to take care of whatever. Are, am, I, am I right about that? Yes. Yes. Okay. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think that, you know, if you if the money is right, attorneys are going to be willing to travel. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you get into trouble, um, you know, up in White County or, you know, in a county that's far away, if you have enough money, you can pay someone and, and someone from Indianapolis would be happy to bill you for their time traveling up to represent you in court. But you're absolutely right. If it's If there's difficulty for the litigant to travel and they don't have the money, they're going to have a much harder time. Mm-hmm. Judge Hamlin sees a lot of this, and so I'd be curious for her perspective as well. But you think in in these small communities, you know, we're talking about you know low level criminal law. We're talking about landlord tenant. We're talking about small business disputes, real estate transactions. Those are things that don't cost a lot of money that real people need in their lives. And these are exactly the kinds of things that lawyers in these communities that we have a shortage of would be doing. Yeah. Yeah, and I'll even ta- I'll even take it a step further. I also think the the counties that are least able 
to address the problem have the biggest problem. So, you know, expanding it out in terms of how we fund public defense in the state, you know, the, the counties that are having the hardest time attracting attorneys, uh, some of those counties are probably also the counties that have the, you know, tightest budget in terms of what they can spend on it and maybe have less political will to spend that money when you're talking about, oh, let's, you know, defund the 4-H program to pay for public defense. You know, it's it just becomes this sort of self-perpetuating problem mm-hmm. at a higher level also beyond that individual level. In our, in our last two minutes, uh, one suggestion that, that you would love to see implemented or that you, you hope that we continue to look at? I would love to see the state take up more of an active role in incentivizing, um, financially incentivizing um, law grads uh, or mid, mid-career lawyers, like the judge said, um, to, to move to these communities. Okay, good. Steve? I, I, I think those of us in legal education can do more, as I said at the top of the show, to expose students, not just through the career services area, but in other areas as well, um, what the day-to-day work is and how it can be interesting and and entrepreneurial and very good for people who are self-starters and like to work for themselves to work in this kind of county seat practice. Last 30 seconds, Judge. Uh, I would like to see a a state take over on indigent defense uh, services and criminal cases. Okay. Instead of delegating that to the counties. All right. Well, thank you all. It's been a, a great conversation. I want to thank Owen Circuit Court 2 Judge Kelsey Hanlon, Steve Sanders, Professor of Law at IU's Maurer School of Law, and Ann McFadden, Dean of Students and Assistant Dean of Student Services for the Maurer School of Law. For uh, Nathan Moore, our producer, and Mike Pashkash, our engineer, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey service for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com.